Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Tunnel Bear, the simple privacy app that makes it easy to access a more open internet and browse privately. Go to freetunnelbear.com and start using it now for free. My name is Catherine Burrell. In December 2014, I pressed sexual assault charges against Gian Gomeshi. As you know, Mr. Gomeshi initially denied all the charges that were brought against him. But today, as you just heard, Gian Gomeshi admitted wrongdoing and apologized to me. It's unfortunate, but maybe not surprising, that he chose not to say much about what exactly he was apologizing for. I'm going to provide those details for you now. I think you heard the rest. Even though Catherine Burrell's full statement that she read on the courthouse steps was initially censored by the CBC and by others, within hours it was broadcast on every newscast, radio and television in the country. By the next morning, it was on the front page of every newspaper. And it was extraordinary. Describing it in the National Observer, journalist Sandy Garasino wrote that, quote, Burrell delivered blow after merciless blow to Gomeshi's reputation and future. 
His evisceration was so swift and devastating that had this been a real boxing match, the ref would have stopped the fight. But no one was there to cover for him. No well-heeled lawyer could leap to his defense, intimidate Burrell with smeary details of long-forgotten transgressions or spring some hidden surprise. She was the surprise. That's what Sandy Garasino wrote. And when Catherine finished that statement, it, it felt like closure. This story that began in the court of public opinion ended there after every other process failed. But of course, it's not over. Not for the many women who never got an apology, over 20 of them. Not for others who have yet to come forward. Not for Jean Gameshi himself. Not for me. Not for Catherine Burrell. This was a big story. It is big, still, and it will follow us. Maybe for the rest of our lives. And I have yet to really discuss it with my friend. But I'm going to have that conversation with Catherine Burrell in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Gabriel O'Brien, Don Gillard, Dave Robertson, James Galetta, Sarabjot Samra, Chris Brown, John Matthew IV, and Moremi Omotoso. Moremi, why did you decide to be awesome? Because Canada Land covers the story behind what's being covered and encourages us to look deeper at what's shaping people's opinions. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by TunnelBear. Why would you need TunnelBear to protect your privacy when you surf the internet? Uh, Well, if you're a journalist, you might need it to protect your sources. If you are a reporter, if you want to securely interact with a whistleblower or with a source, 
you should download TunnelBear. You just turn it on before you Skype, before you email, and you will dodge anyone who is interested in eavesdropping on your conversation. Everything you do will be encrypted. You will not leave a trail. That also goes for doing online research. If you're a journalist or an academic and you don't want anyone snooping on your research, TunnelBear will hide your IP address, which would otherwise reveal your physical location. This is also useful for people who are on summer vacation abroad and using the internet through coffee shops and airports. If you're doing any banking, if you're doing any work-related email that's sensitive, just flip on TunnelBear and you can do so for free. The first 500 megabytes consumed in your session is free when you use freetunnelbear.com. No credit card required. Go to freetunnelbear.com right now. And this episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the accounting software for freelancers and small businesses. That is who it is built for. They are very conscious of the experience of using their mobile app and their website. FreshBooks wants it to be a good, quick experience where everything is intuitive, where needless clicks and steps and friction is removed. And I can tell you it works. It saves me time. It makes an annoying task a lot less annoying, and it makes it a lot quicker as well. I can work anywhere using their mobile app. I can send invoices when I'm out on vacation. I can check and see if somebody has viewed the invoice. I can get paid very quickly via credit card. Even if somebody's mailing you a check, their stats show that people get paid quicker when you use FreshBooks than when you don't. This is just something that empowers you if you are your own business or if you have a small business. Go ahead, if you haven't checked it out yet, Check it out now. Try it for free for 30 days. Freshbooks.com. When you become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you. Thank you, Freshbooks. Hi. I don't even know where to begin. Like what happened the last time you were in Toronto was, it was a moment in the Canadian media or in Canadian public life unlike anything. Your statement on the courthouse steps was unlike anything I've ever seen. I was blacking out, by the way. I don't even remember who opened the doors. It was just like suddenly there were, I was in the courthouse and then all the light came in. And then I was like, don't fall down the stairs. And then I got up to the microphones and I smoothed my bangs. And that was the last thing that I remember. It completely changed that whole narrative. I feel like up until that point, the the sense was oh, he's getting the lightest of wraps on the knuckles. He's getting away with it. And it sort of seemed to all be a continuation of the first trial when everything fell down and he he was prevailing. And anybody who had any second thoughts about victims in general or about specifically what happened there was sort of marginalized. And that changed on a dime. Right. Basically, we were ready to go to trial at any moment up until the Monday before I was flying out, which was a Tuesday. So I gave my statement on May 11th. We still hadn't received an apology we could work with from his side until like on Sunday night, we didn't have it. On Monday morning, it came in. My lawyer called me. She said, OK, we have a text we can work with now uh, where you're not being blamed for having a wacky sense of humor, where he's not making a big speech about how this has affected his uh, sister and his mother. We have something we can work with that will tee you up for the statement that you want to make. Because I'd been writing my statement ever since we had started thinking about taking the deal. Because my point was, this is a story about silence and how people silence you and institutions silence you. And I 
refused to let him have the last word. I needed to put the exclamation point on what had happened because it was my story. It wasn't his story. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if people have a clear narrative of how that apology came to be. I don't know if it's widely understood that they came to you with that. Right. They didn't want to go to trial. No, they did not want to go to trial. And this wasn't the first way they tried to get out of going to trial. Exactly. What was? The first way they tried to get out of trial was uh, my lawyer was approached in a very informal capacity in the courtroom by Marie Hennen. And Marie Hennen said something along the lines of, I really don't feel like doing this the June trial. Um, I, th- I think she said, I'm tired or I'm exhausted or yeah, I, don't, I just don't want to do it. She was kind of casting it off as this little, little annoying thing that she had to do in the summertime. And she said, do you think that your client would be open to a creative solution? So I get this call. At work, I'm at work on this show that I was working on, uh, on the phone from Sue, and she's like, there's this creative solution that Marie wants to present you with. And my first reaction was, oh, it's a plea bargain. This is great. This is great news. Like he'll plead guilty to a lesser charge exactly, or something. Exactly, exactly. And he'll go on his record. And Sue laughed, possibly for a solid minute. And she was like, no, it's not going to be a plea bargain. She's talking about money. And before she could say anything, I was like, Sue, don't even tell me what the number is. Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you what my number is. It's $1 billion and guaranteed chemical castration of Gian Gomeshi. That's my bottom line. And I was like, right. can you tell her can you tell her that? And she said, no, I will not tell her that. Right. Uh, but no, I mean, I didn't. At no point did I do this for money. Yeah. They didn't want to go to trial because this was a very different case. I had a witness. Yeah. I had a paper trail. I had documentation of the actual event, the the charge that he was up on. I had written uh, an email to my friends Rick and Sheila on that day because I think he had just been nominated as like hunk of the year in Toronto life or something like that. Some ridiculous fluffy piece had come out possibly in Toronto life saying that he calling him a hunk. So uh, my friend Rick had emailed me and said, oh, look, your host is hunk of the year on the hunk list. And I wrote him right back and I said, fuck that. Listen to what he just did to me. He leaned me over my workstation and pantomimed a sex act. And I told him to, I yelled at him to stop and then he slinked off. So there, there is documentation in in, in an email form on that day, which was February, sometime in February, 2008. And Roberto Veri saw it happen. Saw it. Yeah. And didn't say anything at the time and then got in touch with me after the story broke in 2014. And he said, Catherine, Catherine, I was over Facebook and he said, I need to admit something to you. I, I saw this thing happen to you. So there are two dates that are confusing to people who are like building the timeline. Right. Because there are two different dates given for, uh, and people thought, oh, this is why I didn't go to trial. Like you would have lost because there were there there was uh, you didn't have your story straight mm-hmm. about when this physical assault happened. There's two dates given for physical I love that. assault. I love that you don't have your story straight. I love it. I love, I love it when people call the truth my story. Like you don't have it straight. It's like no, the truth is straight, and here's how the truth is straight. It didn't happen only once. Yeah. The reason why there are two dates is because there were two incidents. There were two incidents yeah. and and the two documented incidents, another documented incident. There are documented incidents that range from cupping of my butt, the charge that we've talked about, um, him standing in the doorway of his office and un- like locking eyes with me and unbuttoning his shirt and showing me his chest, back massages, 
the infamous hate fuck comment, the follow up comment, which was uh, I want to I'm laughing about the fact that I told you I wanted to grudge fuck you as we were walking towards the studio, which is a soundproof area and things that I for sure have forgotten about because it was so consistent. And if I was to wallow in that period of time for the rest of my life, I would be unable to function. Well, you weren't. I mean, I remember that period of your life. And, I, and, I, and it's interesting to go back and think about like it's interesting for me to think about the things you told me back then and how I received them. And I say that with, with like some degree of uh, regret about, I mean, like I, I, I knew it was serious and I think you, you saw me getting sick, right? Like you saw the way that I was treating myself at the time. Yeah. Uh, like you were like, there were times where you said like meet me for coffee and you'd be in tears. Yeah. But it was, it wasn't like you were in tears because he had just touched you or at least you didn't tell me that it would be like there had been this, framework of the sexual stuff and then there was all this psychological manipulation it was just this dominant force in your life all hours and predicated on the idea that there was like ownership of you right right and it and you know what's interesting is uh you know now that i get to look back on it at kind of the the forensics of how something like that can begin it all started at the beginning in 2006 there's a couple of examples of this but the one that really got me sort of in was he was in the process of breaking up with a beautiful actress who he had been dating, or she had broken up with him. I think she maybe had dumped him. It was a breakup. I don't remember the odds and ends, but he was devastated. And he started confiding in me about the breakup and 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 ask and soliciting my my pity or my compliments or, you know, I am I unlovable? Am I un- unattractive? Am I ever gonna find somebody like her again? And so you've got so I'm a 26-year-old person who it's my first full-time job. I've never had a dental plan before. I've never had stability in my life in terms of my work because CBC is amazing at putting you on a one-week contract and maybe telling you on Friday that you're invited back on Monday. So you're just, you know, I had there, there, it was stability for the first time in my life. And this was so valuable to me. And I didn't have a compass with regards to how to make myself indispensable. Because, you know, when you're a kid and you're getting into the industry, you're like, make yourself indispensable, do whatever it takes to make yourself indispensable. And I was like, well, he's coming at me now with these friendship entreaties or emotional entreaties. And I can't walk away from this. He's a man in pain. I need to help him. Right. And I need to and I need to to be compassionate towards him. And I was. And as a result of that, then I started getting text messages at all hours of the night. And it just pushed and pushed and pushed from there. Yeah. And then I was in and then I was I was somebody who And then he tr- he could turn around a dime and go from you being the confidant to him to being the bat- to being the person who he was he was beating up on psychologically, emotionally. Either, and like, I, guess, I guess there's like three modes. There's like one where you're best buds. Mm-hmm. There's one where he's like intruding on you physically or touching you or making these comments about hate fucking you or whatever. And then there's the like the cold icy. The silence mode. Exactly. Where like which, you're, on, you're on the outs. Which and, could last for days and days. Which yeah. has like impact on whether you're going like, to make, my job. make rent. Yeah. Have um, my job still. Right. And I think that that's something that is really important and I I don't want to uh, say it too many times and, and become, you know, make people have any kind of fatigue about this, but it's something that I feel very strongly about because it was written by, I think Rosie DeMano and both Christy Blatchford kind of mentioned the fact that we were clothed and I'm sorry. During the, during the, during, assaults. The, during the assaults. And I just, I, I don't, I don't understand how that is a defense. Like they were minimizing did. that this was that a big a deal. I don't understand how people have the gall to assume that they know what my physical, emotional, and psychological experience is and cast judgment on it and minimize it 
I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand that. I'm, I'm having such a like, like even just having this conversation with you right now, it, 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 this heavily detailed media saturated story that it, it, like you kind of get this like sense of the news appetite out there. And like, I felt like everybody just reached there. Like, I don't want to hear another word about this disgusting guy. Of course. Even if they are like, they feel that he's guilty of everything. Like, like just enough already. Yeah. And I feel like too much has been said. And I also feel like not enough has been said both in like a, tying up loose threads, like journalistically, I want to speak to some of the, like, there are some questions uh, that are legitimate that I just want to like, like that w- I haven't had an opportunity to sit down with you and go over things like the dates we just discussed uh, or about how you worked with me on the story as right. a source. I want to talk about those things so that that's on the record. And then I also feel like there are, like there's like some definitive documentary about what the hell happened in this country yeah. with this guy and with you and with the others. And what are we to make of it? Like, w- like there were all these hot takes about the water Shed moment in this, and like, I, but what does it ultimately mean? I don't know if we're gonna get there today. No, and I hate, I, and I, I feel like uh, Denise Balkasun has written about this. Like, I, I share the opinion that she has, which is I hate watershed moments. There are no water, there are no watershed moments. It's all, it, it, it's, it is to, it, it's actually to minimize the story to say that there is a watershed moment because it's such an intricate architecture that goes into building a monster like Gian Gomeshi and dismantling him afterwards. Yeah, and then this weird. Collective, like it does kind of feel like we're in this phase now of like, let's just like, he was never here, you know? Yeah. It never happened. And he's laying low and who cares? Who uh, cares? Uh, okay. Let's go back. We were sort of in some sort of a linear. They didn't want to go to trial because they were they were going to lose. They were going to lose. You, it was documented on paper. There was a witness. And all I think they would have been able to do to less effect than the first time is try to discredit you. Absolutely. So it was just going to be, even if we had won... Even if we had won, and I really do think we would have won, which is why I did not flinch when, when you know, we were going back and forth with that apology. I was yelling in the phone at my lawyer, not to my lawyer, she's wonderful and I love her, but, you know, saying, forget it. Let's go to trial. If this is the bullshit yeah. that Hennon's team is sending back to us, where she is saying that I had a jocular tone in the office okay, and well, therefore well, I deserved it. Let's give the context there. Right. So after this attempt, which your lawyer at least felt was uh, an attempt to pay you off. Uh, yes. That you reject that, then they come back to you again. Let's. We don't want to go to trial. Will she accept an apology? You've given like the outline of that just to get it down in a linear way. The first, as I remember, the first thing they offered was like an outright apology. He would unreservedly. We wrote it. It was. It was. It was the count. first draft was the yours. The first draft was all our team. That's so weird. You writing his script again. It was really funny because like I, you used to. I it at was Q. I, the irony was not lost on me as I Did was. Did you write I it in rhyming couplets like the essays? <laughs> oh <God>. <laughs> Over <laughs> Moby tracks. Sorry, I sexually assaulted you. I'm Gian Gomeshi and this is Q. So you wrote you wrote the first draft. He threw that away. I, I sorry, just to be clear, I Michael Callahan uh, wrote crown. the crown and then and then they sent it over to me because again they were very kind in terms of involving me in the process. And then I had some problem I, I had some like a tiny tonal problem and so I, I amended the back half of it uh-huh. and sent it back and they were like, This these are good changes. And then it wasn't until I think May seventh, like they took four or five days to send the amendments back to us. And they just rewritten it in a way that was like, Sue didn't even read it, the whole thing to me because she was like, it's just unacceptable and we're going to reject it outright. Their version was one where you ha- had this jocular sense of humor and you were buddies I with him. I got so confused because I made maybe a penis joke once. So maybe he thought it was okay to come. To and, come and put his clothed right. penis on me. So it was as much uh, a self-exoneration, exculpatory exercise. Yeah, and we, also, we built this together. Catherine and me built this culture together. And, yeah. oh, you know, 
boys will be boys. Right. And and further the pain that his family has suffered and so on. And you rejected that. And then what we ultimately heard him say was was the kind of that was Goldilocks's uh, the, the, the apology that everybody could kind of live with. Exactly. If he had if he had made the the rigorous apology that we had wanted, th- that would have been great. I would have loved that, too. I still would have made a very similar statement on the courthouse steps. But there was something about his slight hedging in the apology that I think made my portion, again, like the exclamation point that I wanted to put on the conversation. I, I think it made it a bit stronger because it, again, points to the fact that... He was minimizing this yes. thing that was important. Well, forget minimizing. He wouldn't even say what it was. He wouldn't even say what it was. Like, like he's apologizing for something that he would not even say what yeah, it was. Yeah, that like Ka- Michael Callahan said what it was. Yeah. Then he referred to it in the apology. And then I just wanted to remind everyone what exactly it was. Your statement was extraordinary because it, it seemed to crystallize one of the major themes of this, which was what happens in a courtroom and through, not just a courtroom, but through f- like formal institutions, be it the CBC be it through the, uh, the the police, the court system, and what that whole process does to expose women to this sort of thing. How do the, how do they the, these systems respond? How does it get recorded? How do people get shut down, marginalized? Like even to the extent where you were you were encouraged, don't file the union grievance, leave that. Or, or when you did complain yeah. to the union, they left out certain parts, so there was no paper trail of mm-hmm. that. Then later when they're doing their investigative, well, there's no paper trail, that nothing happened. The whole thing, like throughout that system and that sphere, which some people put so much like, well, like, like that's the sphere that matters, is this formalized sphere of, right. of these institutions versus the public sphere. And the public sphere is where the story was reported. And then the public sphere was where you told the truth about, I mean, you know, an apology that he wouldn't even explicate what the hell he was apologizing for. The only way people could even know that was your statement at the end, really. Yeah. And it was it was a situation where it was like my house, my rules. Yeah. Walking into Marie Hennon's house doesn't have the same rules as my house. So I was like, my house, my rules. And my my house is outside the courtroom because that's not where I operate. And that's not where... The truth happens a lot of the time for victims of sexual assault. Yeah. And I think that if we had gone to trial, which, again, fully prepared to do, think we would have won. What it what would have happened is that she I'm sure she went through my entire Twitter feed. I don't like this is this is obviously conjecture, but she was going to find examples of how I, too, you know, had a dirty mouth and made dirty jokes and uh, was, uh, you know, I, I, like I was told at the CBC, had a high risk sense of humor. Again, I don't understand how saying things out loud uh, that are dirty or salacious in a general non-targeted, like if I've ever made a joke about a penis, I'm never talking about the person in front of me's penis. I am talking about human sexuality in, yes, possibly a tone that is off color. But are we not allowed to make jokes that are off color? Well, whether you are or you're not, it's a, it, the, the distinction, which is pretty solid for me, is that no one was made to feel threatened. They no. might They might have felt that you were being lewd or – but even that – Okay, so I have to apologize to you, which is part of why I wanted to chat with you today. Yeah. Um, yeah, give it to me. I had you on the show once before. Like, I actually feel like a huge dick because when I was just starting Canada Land, I was like, okay, I, I need to have the kind of conversations that I have with people in the media, the real conversations about real things, and who is more real than my friend Catherine Brell. And I like, I went to New York to get to work on the uh, documentary about Vice. Uh, and I interviewed Gavin McInnes and then I came to LA. I slept on your couch mm-hmm. and you like indulged me 
and we're like, I'll talk to you for your podcast. I think Jesse. I even bought the pizza that we were rudely chewing into the microphone. I bought the wine. You um, did. That's true. I was trying to get you to be as candid and open as possible. First of all, I didn't know that Gameshi had ever actually physically assaulted you at that point. I knew he'd been a terrible boss. Right. And, but and, also and I kn- because I kind of didn't know that he had assaulted me because I was like, well, he he just because it was so gradual. Yeah. I, I have to watch myself to not put like a value judgment on which form of assault is worse. Right. I, I did not know about all of these other women who ha- he had rela- remote romantic relationships with or otherwise who he had been alleged of doing very serious physical physical harm to. So for me still, it was in the realm of like media gossip. And I was mm-hmm. like, maybe if I interview Burrell about her career and about the CBC, we can talk about a number of things, including what it was like to work for that guy. And uh, we'll, we'll drink some wine and I'll, I'll, and like, I'll push you the way that I do always in our sure. friendship to get you to respond. And, and I, I said, oh, you know, you're so lewd around the office. You're so inappropriate. And that later became really consequential because this, of course, at least in Christy Blatchford's opinion, is something that Hanan would, I guess we'll never know, would have used. Like, even your friend says you were lewd and inappropriate at the office. And you corroborated that one day, at some point, not at Q, by the way, had made a fist-fucking joke. Yeah, so, and then you, I, it worked. I was able to get you to say, oh, yeah, I made a fist-fucking joke at the CBC, right? right? So I, I, I drew you out as I tried to in an interview to get you to talk about what it was like there and how you were this odd duck at the CBC. Sure. The fact of the matter is... I never saw you make a dirty joke in a professional context. You saw me. You saw me rap. Bust you rapped. A move. When you were working at Metro Morning, you rapped "Bust a Move," and I, I saw a lot of people in their cubicles turn over and like, "Who the hell is she? And what is going on right, right. now?" But I never saw you. I take it now that you were lewd and inappropriate of at a course. Metro Morning meeting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that again, not that I need to provide context for this, but I do remember I had just learned about the concept of fist fucking is a sexual thing and I was like can you believe it right. I think if I was making a joke it was more like oh my goodness can you believe it I was later made to feel awful at the prospect that Hanane would have you on the stand and say even your friend Jesse Brown says like is it not possible that you were just as disgustingly lewd to, to Jean and I, I I had never even heard I have no reason to believe that sure. you were. I'd never seen or heard you talk about that. That said, that said, if she had asked me the question, and I don't know, I, I don't know if I would have been able to respond like this, but I, I would have asked her, is it a crime? Is it, a, is it an actual crime to say the word fuck in an office? Well, forget crime. The implication is that had you being lewd and sexual in a joking manner to Gameshi, then that would have justified and basically exonerated him if he did what he did, which is not to return in kind with a dirty joke, but to say, boy, would I like to hate fuck you. Yeah. Or to grab your body in front of a colleague yeah. and and mime having sex with you, yeah. like that. Those things are in any way of the of the same order. Like it's it's such a complicated thing because I'm trying to say like maybe you told dirty jokes at Q, but I don't want to help them make that case. But even if that's true, who the fuck cares? Who the fuck cares? <laughs> you know, who the fuck cares? And uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a million layers to this, and uh, and you know we can we can talk about it forever. But who cares if a girl makes a dirty joke and I have a huge because it's like if a guy makes a dirty joke no one's raising an eyebrow but the fact that you are who you are Mm -hmm. the fact that you are big you know you're a big presence in a room the fact that you are different than the uh, uh, buttoned down 
corporate culture, bureaucratic CBC culture, the fact that you are at times lewd and humorous, whether it's in a social or professional context, the fact that you have a reputation for being that way did matter. And the reason it matters is that that, I think, is why you were targeted by him. Right. He targeted people who would have problems complaining afterwards, either yeah. because they came to him as a fan. They came to him for a romance or for sex even. Mm -hmm. There's a record yeah. of them adoring him. Or there's a record of you having been jokey and uh, arguably inappropriate. And also that I had been kind of handpicked by him too, right? Because he had heard a story actually that I had done uh, with your sister when your sister was one in Bunch family. And I had interviewed all those little kids this is all the way back in 2006. Uh -huh. I had interviewed all these kids. And remember, I'd done that piece on Metro Morning where I'd interviewed children about art, but then I had gone back and re-recorded really highbrow questions. And then the, the premise of the piece was my crazy highbrow questions and then little kids answering in this little kid way. And it was like a funny little sound piece that had run on Metro Morning. And he had heard it and he had emailed me. And he said, hey, that was a really great piece. Uh, they're going to give me a show. CBC's giving me a show, a national show. Uh, I would love to meet with you for coffee and talk about it. And so I met with him for coffee on a summer day in 2006 summer, I think. I'm fairly sure uh, that I have the dates right on that one. And I met him outside the you know, one of the entrances, not the Front Street entrance, something, whatever. The point is, I was wearing a sweater inside the CBC because it was, you know, they kept it super cold in there. But it was summertime, so I took my sweater off and I was wearing a tank top underneath. And he and I were drinking coffee and I got hot. Took my sweater off and he made a comment about the tightness of my tank top. I was like, that's creepy, whatever. And then he told me about the potential show that he was going to get and so on and so forth. And so I felt, I also felt, I felt like I owed him something as well. Uh-huh. At the time, I mean, yes, I didn't know the full extent of it, but as a friend, I think I owe you an apology because, like, I knew you were going through a tough time. I knew that he was like this like, – I just kind of had him as, like, in my head as, like, oh, he's this creepy diva who, like, um, is your classic, like, you know, if you watch Larry Sanders, like, you're, you know, the show host who's just terribly insecure and is, like, you know, am I too fat? And, like, you know, do they do love me? Do people love me? But then turns on you and it's, like, you know, you like, uh, I fucked up that interview and it's all your fault, yeah. you know? And I was, like, oh, you've got a terrible diva for a boss. Mm -hmm. Oh, and also you're terribly unhappy and having like a breakdown. That's but the, sad but the, but to the, exonerate you a little. I, I mean, I love watching you like prostrate yourself in front of me. This is a delight for me. As somebody who never says sorry to me and you've been a problematic friend for me for 10 years who I love dearly. But you did... And I, again, can't remember the exact year, but it was it was pretty shortly into my stint there. So probably late 2007. I remember distinctly you saying, Catherine, start taking notes, start a notebook. Yeah. And every time he does something to you that is inappropriate, write it down. And it's like, I wish I had done that. Can you imagine that would have been like that yeah. would have been the source code? I go back through my emails and and like in multiple emails to you know, desperate emails to friends. I'm saying he sexually harasses me every single day. Yeah, yeah. Because the harassment, even when it was not touching, there was always a creepy sexual component. I uh, like the, like the reason why I feel contrite is that uh, is that I pressured you. Like what happened was, from my point of view, 
I knew you had this creepy diva of a boss. I knew that he had gone over the line in a bunch of ways and was like a sexually harassing boss. And that's what I knew about him, mm-hmm. you know? And I heard some rumors that he liked rough stuff in his private life and I didn't care about that. Right. And then I get these women coming to me with these other stories. Yeah. And they're atrocious and they're troubling. And I remember you calling me. I remember you calling me that day and it was April 2014. Yeah. And I felt like, okay, these women are not going to go on the record. They have to go and admit that they wanted to have sex with him and these things happen. Their, their, yes. their parents have to read this. Oh, my they're, gosh. You know, they're not going to do it. And some of them stayed with him after this happened, you know. Right. They're not going to do it. But Catherine can go on the record because Catherine was an employee. Mm-hmm. And she's got nothing to be embarrassed about. She, and, I, and, I, and, and I need her to go on the record yeah. because I need somebody. So it's not all built on anonymous sources. Yeah. And I said – Go fuck yourself, dude. I finally I finally cast off the bonds. I had just I I'd literally just gotten hired to work on like my first cool staff show in LA. I'd sold some projects, but I'd never been staffed before. This is a huge deal. And you don't have to give any like no. none of this even matters. Like I know I'm, I'm telling you that I was wrong. Right. To think that it was somehow easy for you right. to do. I mean, and now seeing what's happened since, like that that would that that would have been an easy thing for you to yeah. just like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, you quote me on that. Ultimately, you did go on the record, and when you went on the record, you you, you spelled out the whole story, that your friend – I mean, there was no hiding no. Uh, that we had been friends. My friend Jesse Brown and came I, to me. Right. Yeah. So people have been asking me, like, well, is that kosher that in your initial story, one of your sources was this longtime friend of yours? And, you know, I in a perfect world, your source would not be – Sure. Right. Of course, where do you get stories from? These connections often yield. Human beings tell stories to each other. You're usually telling stories to friends. Yeah. And the more disclosure, the better. Yes. And, and, And for the reader to just know what went into this story was always my, you know, but, but balancing that against, well, an anonymous source needs to be anonymous. Right. So Also, like, Donovan knew, a seasoned investigative journalist. I assume everyone up the ranks at this Toronto Star knew about our relationship. It's not as though you hadn't disclosed our relationship in the early stages of the investigation, right? Which is something that I just, like, that was not something that I ever hid from anybody I was working with or wanted to hide. The only obfuscation is the obfuscation of the name of the source when you were anonymous, right? Because right? I asked so, to be anonymous. Yeah. So the, 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 the lead editor of the investigative unit, Kevin Donovan, knew you were my friend when I brought the story to the star. Yes. That was overt. So that's something that I wanted to get on the record here. Yeah. Among, among everything. Among just telling you that like... Uh, I don't know. It's an interesting thing for me to go look back and say, like, you know, I do all these different things. Sometimes I have, like, a seemingly trivial episode of the show where we're just shooting the shit. And later it comes to be so consequential. Later it's evidence. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's made me feel like you can't prioritize any one story over the next. Like, it it all matters, you know, or it all could matter. But, you know, it's so interesting because, again, you came in... I don't remember when it was. It, it was we were. St- I was still at my apartment on Armstrong Avenue, so it must have been 2011 or 2012. I can't remember what year it was. Sometime around then, that's when we did that original podcast. Yeah. If you look at the state of the conversation about sexual harassment and sexual assault and the way that institutions support these horrible criminal behaviors, we were in nascent stages of talking about that kind of stuff, right? So... Again, I hadn't even internalized that what he had done to me was sexual assault because we're so 
lazy or emotionally illiterate or all of the things that we are as a society, which we are, I think, correcting right now in terms of talking about this catastrophic problem. Yeah. And of which he's he's only one, you know, freakish symptom. He's just a symptom. He's a symptom. And there's all sorts of things that happen that are yeah. since reporting this. I became, I guess, considered a safe person for women to bring these stories to. And I, it was like the, the, the scales fell from my eyes. And I'm like, oh my God. It happens all the time. And I mean, I, like, I also became a little bit of a, I don't want to say dumping ground because I'm so grateful to these people who confided to me afterwards, but I was getting hundreds of Facebook messages from people I did not know saying, thank you, this happened to me in 1967. Thank you, this happened to me in 1993. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I didn't know what it was because we don't acknowledge it. And you acknowledged it. And it takes saying it out loud and saying it truthfully for people to then recognize it as the truth and go, oh, right, that's my truth too. But because... Women, a lot of the time, are told not to trust themselves, to not trust their bodies, to not trust what's happening to them. It's very hard to tell that truth. Yeah, especially as I realize how many of the kind of like reflexive responses to that, which serve to suppress that, like I've internalized. I hope that this, along with Cosby and a lot of other things that are happening, like the Woody Allen, like that something is changing about how how we receive accounts of victimization, how we, like, I would love it if this sordid story, I never started doing this to like report on crime, you know, that was, you know, and I, I fear in in a way that this is going to be like associated with me. Uh, people are like, Oh, he's never going to get a big story like that again. I'm like, great. Right. I never want to meet another person who could do something like that to so many people, of course. Yeah. And I feel like it's it's it it was this big moment. I feel like it will be something that people will be asking you about for the rest of your life. Like I want to put a lid on it. I think a lot of people out there want there to be a lid on it. There can't be. No, it's gonna keep like he's gonna try to have his next act. Donovan's book's gonna come out. It, it, it goes on and on. And yet new to be. vocabulary has actually been formed. The idea of politeness conditioning, the idea of uh, rape mythology, the idea of um, counterintuitive post-assault behavior, yeah. the idea that, like, again, rape stats, false reporting stats are not 50 percent. They're two to eight percent. You know, we have these numbers in our heads now and we have these words in our heads now. And that informs the conversation and that makes the conversation. Yeah, that'd be great. A, a greater understanding. So, so it's not just a bunch of like over-examination of a lurid story, but that there's actually something that changes. Then there's just like from a journalistic level, like I, I, I recognize that like the think piece comes later, the, the, the grand societal change comes later. What actually happened? Because now we've got something like 25 different uh, separate allegations. I don't know for every one person who's spoken to a journalist about this, are there five who haven't? Like are the, there the, 200 who haven't? I don't know. I have no idea, but I would be very surprised. I know of people who came to me and ultimately decided they didn't want mm-hmm. their story published. So I know of a few others who haven't been reported on. I know of two others who haven't been reported on. So I think that for those, like in this specific story, we still don't know the full span of it. We're Absolutely s- not. Or, or, or maybe even how bad it got. Yep. You know, so there's there's a lot that, I'm, I'm sorry, everybody, you might have to hear about this some more. And that, and that needs to happen. Yeah. It's awful, but we are having the conversation. Thank God. Are you okay after all of this? It, it is like it got so white hot for a moment there. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that followed you back to L.A. Like it's so funny to be like at the center of such a media sensation, uh, and then and then 
Hollywood is where nobody and knows about no one, it. And no one cares. No, I mean... Maybe it, that's a refuge. I don't know. No, I think that... Well, I, I was thinking about that. So, um, you know, I made my speech on Wednesday, and then I was out on Thursday with some friends, and I um, I don't smoke a lot, but sometimes when I want to have a, a moment of catharsis, I have a cigarette, and I went onto the street, didn't have cigarettes, bummed to smoke, and the guy who gave me my smoke was like, whoa, you're Catherine Burrell. You know, he said, thank you, and I said, thank you. And I smoked on the street, and I looked out at Ossington, and I was like, okay enjoy this because this is going to last for no time like this satisfaction and this good feeling and think that you, the, the fact that you did something that was hopefully kind of important this is not going to last so I smoked my cigarette felt a little ill went back to LA and then biked across southern Utah because I was like don't be in your brain anymore try to be in your body so I biked from Bryce Canyon National Park to Mount Zion just was complete, like cried at the majesty of 180 million year old rocks and the only pair of mating condors in the south of America. And I got back to LA and I was like, oh, this is what it is. It used to be like a beast, like a, let's say a tiger inside my body. And, um, and it used to like roar and bite me and hurt me and scratch me. And what this did was I got to slay it and I got to put it under glass like in the Natural History Museum, that's my body, you know, and that's my life. Because I can't forget about it. But because it, you can't forget about something like that. But it's dead now. Yeah. And it's But it's preserved. But it can't hurt me anymore. And now I have a cool new job where I get to write a cool pilot about like young female political correspondence on the presidential campaign trail. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to move on with my life. And um and if people need help on this front, I want to help them. And if people want to talk about it, I want to talk about it with them. But um, I'm going to go back to my life. I think you did help them. I mean, I think that how many people who are traumatized or hurt fantasize about a moment like the one you had where the world watches as you speak your truth. It was it was unbelievable. I, I, I don't know what it's like. Uh, for, it, it feels like you talk about the idea of vindication and you're like, oh, whoa, this is this is what vindication feels like. A lot of women have told me what you did meant a lot to a lot of people. A lot of people who don't get that moment will never have will never come out of a courthouse where they're apologized to for what happened to them. And they have a, a, an opportunity to stand there and say, well, this is what happened to me. Yeah, that was that was the point. OK, thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Jesse. Catherine, I had to call you back again because I forgot to ask you something. Okay. I just want to know if this is true. This is something that I heard. Is there a television show getting pitched around about Marie Hanane? Yeah. From what I understand, uh, Warner Brothers has optioned the uh, Toronto Life profile that came out about Marie Hanane uh, last year. And they're looking to they're looking for a writer currently to develop that pilot. Okay. And is this with her approval? Like, is she involved with this? I don't know whether she signed her life rights away, but I definitely know that she's involved in the project. Yes. How involved? I think she's, she's involved. She's vetting the writers. She definitely has a huge say in who will be writing her story. This is just bizarre. You're a TV writer. Yes. Like, I can't think of anybody who knows more about it. Yeah, I actually, I did call my agent because I was interested. And uh, I said, do you think that I would be considered? And she said, probably not. And I said, well, can we try? Because I have been thinking about her for the last 18 months. 
That would be a very awkward job interview. Uh, if if there was a job interview, did did you get a call back? No, no, God no. Right. You know, I mean, I, I've got such a mixed response to this because on the one hand, it just feels kind of tacky, especially, you know, there was so much accusation that like you and all the other accusers were just doing this for fame or for recognition or to cash in in some way. And yet, you know, the one who's, who's, who's like trying to make a TV show is his defense attorney. On the other hand, I totally would watch that show. I know. I know. It's interesting. There's just no end to how bizarre this is. It's just, it's just so strange. It's a strange story. Okay, that was your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me. I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com and I read everything you send me. I respond when I can. Our website is at canadalandshow.com and our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. And The Imposter, our brand new show hosted by Aliyah Pabani, debuts on Wednesday. You can subscribe to it on our website at canadalandshow.com or on iTunes. I make this show with Katie Jensen. The syndicated version of this show, which we make available to radio stations for free across this country, is put together by Russell Gragg. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.